Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, I want to make a confession. In the past, I've got three things wrong about patriarchy. Seriously wrong. Allow me to share why I was so mistaken and how I came to revise my prize. So this is part of my book project on the great gender divergence, why all countries have become more gender equal and why some countries are now more gender equal than others. So, point of wrongness number one. When I lacked globally comparative knowledge, I was blind to country-specific characteristics. Fukuyama put this very well. He who only knows one country understands none. So, Women can do what men can do, can be heard across the Zambian copper belt. Eager to understand the causes of growing support for gender equality, I undertook 18 months of ethnographic research. I became fluent in Bemba, interviewed over 200 people, lived in slums, swamps, middle-class homes, observed classrooms, markets and political meetings. Worsening economic security, the collapsing price of copper, state cutbacks, male job losses, user fees, the scourge of HIV AIDS, had all propelled women into the labour market. As a multitude of women demonstrated equal competence in socially valued male-dominated domains, people slowly came to question their gender stereotypes. Market traders shared stories of female mechanics, mine truck drivers and widows single-handedly providing for their children. Seeing this public support, others became emboldened to demand equality. For the elections, we want women, they chorused. That was my analysis, but it was only half right. Without globally comparative knowledge, I was blind to country-specific characteristics. Relative to the Middle East, North Africa and South Asia, Zambian's preference for female seclusion was relatively weak. Female labour supply thus rose quickly in response to shifting economic incentives. Culture mediates the rate at which women seize opportunities created by development and democratization. So this brings me to another two areas where I was wrong. Number one, I overestimated the importance of labor demand in agriculture. Many cross-sectional studies find a strong correlation between crop systems and gender relations. Where women's contribution to farm production was relatively significant, such as in labour-intensive foraging, horticulture and wet paddy fields, they tended to have greater authority and independence. Girls were seen favourably and premarital sex was permitted. Whereas in societies where men's labour was more crucial, ploughing and herding cattle, there was more reverence for men. Or so the standard argument goes. By studying the global history of gender, I began to rethink those priors. Farm work, we know, is no surety of women's esteem or autonomy or protection from violence. Even if women work long days harvesting crops, pounding grain and fetching firewood, their labour may be unrecognised and underappreciated. Ethnographies, focus groups and surveys 
all tell us that rural women's contributions are scarcely considered work, even by women themselves. As in 19th century Haryana saying goes, women as cattle bound, working and enduring all. It is only through paid work in the public sphere that women can mingle with diverse others, discover more egalitarian ideas, forge more diverse friendships and become emboldened to resist unfairness. But families that exploit women's labour on farms may nevertheless restrict it in cities. Rajasthan scores high for rural but not urban female employment. Why is that? Because male honour is contingent upon female purity, which can only be maintained through careful surveillance. That's simply not possible in Udaipur's bustling bazaars. So, where seclusion is idealised, urban but not rural female employment is repressed. In Turkey, female labour force participation is 14% lower among those that idealise seclusion. But that relationship only holds in cities, not villages. So even if peasants are extremely patriarchal, they still harness female labour, since male honour is not at risk. Yet even as labour demand has dwindled in agriculture, less educated Turkish women have shunned urban employment. Greek women, by contrast, are much more responsive to economic opportunities in town. They now comprise 28% of legislators, senior officials and managers. Double that of Turkey. So why did I get it so wrong? Why did I overestimate the importance of labour demand in agriculture? Well, convention and correlations misled me. Labour demand is the standard narrative. And I didn't know any better. Alessina and colleagues famously proved that Bozarup was right. Plough cultivation is associated with men's political and economic dominance. Since men are physically stronger, they ploughed, while women process cereals back home. Gender divisions of labour became naturalised. That's highly plausible. But by studying 10,000 years of cultural evolution, I realised that's not the whole story. Societies with the exact same geography, technology and socioeconomic complexity can still differ enormously on gender. Let me give three illustrations. And I quote, men plough, women weave. That's been the Chinese convention for millennia. But at the beginning, that was just a a brute fact, not a lofty ideal. Women only became confined to the inner quarters under the sway of Confucianism. Second example, the Minoan civilization was technologically complex and socially stratified. Paintings also show women occupying prominent social positions in outdoor assemblies, freely fraternizing with men. In this exact same location, a little while later, the ancient Greeks institutionalised one of the most patriarchal societies the world has ever known. Women's names were not even uttered in public. Third example, before Islam, gender relations were diverse across the Middle East and North Africa. In Egypt, women had equal rights under the law. Queen Zenobia of what is now Syria led 70,000 men into battle against the Roman Empire. 
The Amazir, also called Berber, revered women leaders. Godet's Tanit, warrior Queen Tin Hanan, and military commander Dia. Seclusion only became normative after the Arab Islamic conquest and subsequent influence of Ghazali. Persistence studies cannot detect this cultural evolution or discern causal mechanisms because they typically rely on data gathered at one point in time. Cultural economists usually rely on the ethnographic atlas, which compiles 19th and early 20th century ethnographies of over a thousand groups worldwide. But this is just a snapshot. By studying 10,000 years of patriarchy, I realised that Alessina and colleagues were right. The plough is hugely important, but the causal mechanism is not labour demand. It is actually inherited wealth amid insecurity. Let me explain. So the plough, as we know, raised crop yields and made land a valuable asset. Wealth then turned patrilineal inheritance into a key element of social organisation. The more wealth a son inherited, the greater his reproductive success by attracting concubines, wives and rearing offspring. But this was threatened by raiders. Patrilocal lineage is then formed to defend valuable land and herds. To promote intergenerational cooperation, children were socialised to privilege lineage, to put family first. That lineage cooperation, male honour and intermarriage alliances were maintained by controlling female sexuality. When societies grew, they were threatened by infighting. Men squabbled over women, wealth and property. Sexual jealousy may have been mitigated by religions that idealised sexual segregation, chastity, fidelity and veiling. Compliance was promoted by praising female virtue, social policing and state laws, as well as moralising supernatural punishment. Male rulers and theologians blamed floods, droughts and earthquakes on disobedient women. Amid fears of eternal damnation, there emerged cults of chastity. Islam became particularly patriarchal. That cultural evolution was mediated by geography. Oceans, mountains and parasites constrained the spread of draft animals, pastoralism and Islam. Without these major forces of patriarchalization, the Americas, Southeast Asia, the Gulf of Guinea and Southern Africa did not develop patrilineal inheritance of wealth. With little concern for paternity, women could move freely, exercise authority, build independent networks of solidarity and propagate folklore that glorified their powers. So the plough was important, but not because it suppressed demand for female labour in the fields. Rather, the emergence of inherited wealth amid insecurity encouraged patrilineal, and as these societies flourished, they built religions which sanctified female seclusion. On a recent trip to Morocco, I realised another reason why we might have been misled by the ethnographic atlas. Hiking through the Atlas Mountains, I was surprised to see village women tending goats and taking cattle to water. Higher up, I spied a nomad summer camp where entire families migrate for several months a year. This rocked my priors, for the ethnographic atlas actually codes their pastoralism as male alone. I quote. So even if low female contributions to agriculture are correlated with patriarchy, 
I wonder, the direction of causation remains murky. That coding may just reflect male bias of men amping up their own importance. Okay, so that's me overestimating the importance of labour demand in agriculture. Let me come to another area where I was wrong. I underestimated the role of religion. So here's a question for you. Why is female employment so low in the Middle East and North Africa? Three years ago, and let me be candid with you, I dismissed the possibility that it might be due to Islam. Instead, I praised Michael Ross's theory that oil booms lowered the cost of agricultural and manufacturing imports, which made local industries uncompetitive and thereby lowered labour demand for women. I was wrong. Oil did not cause patriarchy. Female seclusion was integral to male honour long before oil booms. Even if there is a giant oil discovery in a highly Muslim country, female labour force participation only falls by two percentage points over 10 years. Plus, actually, the countries with the globally highest increase in female labour market participation are oil-rich Kuwait and Qatar. By tracing cultural evolution over several millennia, I realised that female seclusion only became normative after the Arab-Islamic conquests and Sharia law. In the 7th century, as you know, Arabs conquered vast swathes of territory across the Middle East and North Africa. Conquered people gained rights and tax exemptions if they converted to Islam, recited the Quran, gained an Arab patron and adopted tribal lineages. Patrilineal kinship was simultaneously reinforced by Sharia law's recognition of male agnates in inheritance and patrilineal ownership of children, but it was also threatened by Muslim women's inheritance rights. Cousin marriage provided a solution, consolidating family wealth, strength and trust. It remains especially high in Muslim countries formerly under the Umayyad Caliphate. So as Egyptians shifted from bilateral to patrilineal tribes, they restricted women's rights and freedoms. Iraq became the seat of the Sunni Muslim empire. Persian theologians managed state institutions of learning and played a crucial role in developing Islamic ethics. They constructed men as intellectually superior, uniquely capable of reason and thus rightful patriarchs. Men could only achieve piety by policing women, thereby preventing fitna, that is corruption. Clerics repeatedly prescribed gender segregation, barring women from communal prayers in the mosque. Open dissent was increasingly inhibited by these close-knit tribes, fears of eternal damnation and religious authoritarianism. In the 13th century, Mamluk Sultan Bazbe and clerics claimed that Egypt's plays were Allah's Plagues, sorry, plagues were Allah's punishment for women's un-Islamic practices. They were ordered to stay home. So I was wrong about Islam. I underestimated it. I was also wrong about Christianity. Medieval Europe was very patriarchal, but it possessed a latent advantage, which would prove important centuries later under job-creating economic growth. Families were nuclear without cousin marriage. How did that emerge? My prior, before starting this project, 
was that deep wage labor markets and urbanization accelerated exogamy. Young men and women worked in service outside their natal villages and then eloped. An alternative hypothesis, espoused by Goody, Henrik, Schultz and others, credited Christianity. I was extremely skeptical. Reading more widely, scrutinizing the evidence, I realized I was mistaken. So now let me, here are the facts, the best of my understanding. This is, this is a contested area. Patrilineal clans emerged in Europe as a result of colonization by horse-riding steppe people. From, but from 300 to 1300 CE, Common Era, the Roman Catholic Church and Carolingian Empire tried to stamp out cousin marriage and polygamy. Noble families leveraged incest prohibitions to prevent their rivals from consolidating wealth. English families were nuclear before the Black Death. Peasants disregarded lineage and rarely exchanged work with extended kin. There was also broad compliance with myriad church strictures, which cannot be explained by anything but religion. In the 14th century, English marriages seldom occurred during Lent, nor if men had prior relations with her kinswomen, as was prescribed by the church. Young men and women often worked in service until they had saved enough to establish their own nuclear households, and the age of marriage was thus unusually high in northwestern Europe. It was around the mid-20s, especially when wages were low. So Christianity was hugely important. It was the church that had stamped out cousin marriage. So I was wrong about religion, doubly wrong. Why was I, how did I get it so wrong? What, what blinded me? I think progressive groupthink is likely part of the explanation. When I studied international development at the London School of Economics, no one even mentioned religion, nor did my friends, family or academic peers. The only time Islam really came up was in relation to discrimination post 9-11. You know, we all loathe the lies and the hate propagated by right-wing media. No one I knew and respected emphasised the enormous cultural influence of religion. I was in a secular bubble. Ironically, my ignorance may have been exacerbated by my atheism, empiricism and nihilism. I did not fully appreciate the cognitive impact of faith, religious righteousness and fear of eternal damnation. I was strongly biased against the proposition that people stop marrying their cousins just because they were instructed by the church. You know, I would have laughed and dismissed that idea. Mock. Okay, so let me summarise. Comparative historical analysis has helped me understand each country better. I learnt so much more about the drivers of gender equality in Zambia by asking why it differed from other countries. Fukuyama was dead right. He who only understands one country understands none. Culture, I quickly realised, mediates the rate at which women seize opportunities created by development and democratisation. But my initial explanations of global cultural variation were doubly wrong. As I said, I overestimated the importance of labour demand in agriculture and I underestimated religion. 
My ignorance was largely due to the novelty of my research project. You know, I, I freely admit that before starting, I did not know everything about 10,000 years of patriarchy. But bias and groupthink also played a part. So now I strive to destroy those blinkers and blind spots by reading widely and discussing that evidence with brilliant minds. Advancing knowledge is a collective endeavour, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful to those who help me get it right, eventually. So this is a brief podcast about the three things I got wrong about patriarchy. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Alice Evans, and I wish you the very best. Take care.